This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Michael Sembalist with the Labor Day Eye on the Market podcast. So that was a long summer. Um, we sent out an eye on the market today, a uh, day after Labor Day, that covers a lot of ground. I'm just going to summarize it briefly here. Uh, the big topics are how should we think about a market uh, where that is highly concentrated in tech stocks at high valuations? Uh, what's the cost of engineering this U.S. recovery as the world waits for a vaccine, looking at both what the central banks have done and, and um, fiscal deficits? Uh, we'll discuss some U.S. election rules, dates, and process in light in, of some very derogatory comments on mail-in voting by the president and his uh, attorney general, and a few other things. So uh, let's see. Looking back in January of this year, we spent most of our time focused on the China-U.S. trade deal and the prospects of an election in which Trump was on track to run with one of the strongest economic and market tailwinds in 100 years. Obviously, those things have both changed a lot. Um, China is very far from meeting its trade deal purchase commitments, but the market no longer cares about it. And while the U.S. economy is recovering, Trump's uh, once-in-a-lifetime uh, tailwinds are gone, mostly due to the coronavirus. So <clears throat> one of the things that we did is to keep track of uh, the cost of achieving this recovery we've seen so far, which has propelled the S&P 500 to all-time highs again. Uh, there's no question, so far, the recovery looks a lot like a V, right? And if you look at industrial production and retail sales, uh, the recovery in employment and job openings, lumber, steel, electricity output, all these things are recovering with V shapes that are much more V shaped um, than the prior recession and, and, and most recessions for that matter, because it was never an organic recession to begin with because of the lockdowns. So. Uh, the issue here is that this is, didn't come cheap. The increase in, in fiscal deficits and central bank balance sheets, which we track um, for this cycle and for a few countries and regions versus global financial crisis, the European balance of payments crisis, the depression, and things like that, the world has never seen a monetary and fiscal expansion like the one uh, that was just produced in a matter of months. And we can debate the cost of central bank expansion in terms of risks of inflation, which I consider right now to be pretty low. But I don't think there's any debate that at some point there's going to be a price to pay for the fact that U.S. gross federal debt is now expected to end the year at, at World War II peaks uh, over 100% of GDP. And so... Um, as an exercise, not that I think either party would consider doing this, but as an exercise, we worked with the committee for a uh, responsible federal budget to figure out what would it take to bring U.S. federal debt back to pre-virus levels by 2030. So in other words, let's spend the next 10 years reversing the last six months of debt expansion, and it would take the largest tax hikes or spending cuts in history, or... Uh, we could grow our way out of it, but it would take a growth boom uh, in terms of real GDP growth consistently above 4%, somewhere between 4 and 6%. And the last time that happened 
uh, was the mid-1960s. Uh, so, you know, more than 50 years ago. So uh, it's very unlikely that the U.S. is going to be able to bring these debt levels back down. Um, and, and I don't think there's the political will to do this. Uh, and so the U.S. will just have to get used to very high, not quite Italian, but almost Italian levels of, of government debt. I agree that it was the right thing to do for now because it sustains private sector demand and, and the benefits outweigh the cost of the economy. But these, uh, these experiments can have a lot of unprecedented consequences. And down the road, the U.S. flexibility to respond to all sorts of geopolitical, natural disaster, climate, and other emergencies will be impaired by having this level of debt. So to be clear... U.S. debt levels may rise even further, right? I mean, Trump has been running massive deficits at a time of full employment uh, before the virus. And, um, and Biden's agenda proposes about $5 trillion worth of taxes and $8 trillion of spending. So if anything roughly proportional, like the Biden proposals, goes through if he's elected, uh, we'll, we'll have a, a, a lot of increase in the U.S. debt anyway. Um, some people respond to this Biden plan very negatively. I, I think, uh, for me, it's a split decision. A lot of the items that Biden wants to spend money on have pretty high growth multipliers, whether it's you know, housing, education, infrastructure, and jobs, and, and some of the health care, but not all of the, some of the health care proposals. So I don't think it's a priori negative economic growth. Um, I do think there, there would be some headwinds for the corporate sector, because a big, very big part of how this spending expansion uh, would be financed would be through corporate taxes. And um, one of the things that, that you have to pay close attention to and, and is, you know, Biden's people are clever in the way they say this. They say we're only going to raise corporate taxes by half of the Trump corporate tax rate cut. But um, uh, the, the rates aren't the way to look at this. If you include all the base broadening and sector-specific tax proposals, Biden's proposing raising up to around $2.5 trillion of new corporate taxes. That's many multiples higher than the reduction in taxes that came with the Trump corporate tax cuts in 2017. So, um, you know, I, I, there'll be another time and place to talk about uh, the wealth taxes. I mean, there's between the payroll taxes and taxes on the wealthy, there's a proposed couple of trillion dollars uh, in terms of taxes on the wealthy. But right now, I think the bigger issue for investors is the headwinds to the markets that might come uh, from this much corporate taxation. Uh, and, and this could take a reasonable chunk out of after-tax earnings. And so we'll have to wait and see what gets passed and how it gets passed and when it gets passed. But the biggest headwind here is from that. So I, I, I see a positive outcome for growth and employment, uh, but you know, some headwinds on valuation. Now, some people might say, well, that's fair because for the last 25 to 30 years, there's essentially been an implicit wealth transfer from workers to owners of capital, and this would just be reversing some of that by reducing corporate valuations to transfer wealth back to median income workers. And I think that's explicitly um, part of what the Biden agenda is all about. Uh, everyone can make their judgments in terms of um, what that means for them. Uh, but I think that's the broad outline through which you should be looking at Biden's agenda. The other challenge for the equity markets is um, obviously the concentration 
high valuations and the concentration in terms of the contribution from just a few large tech and social media stocks. So the, there, there's a bit of good news and bad news, and, and I'm, I'm going to try not to cherry pick any specific data point. Um, the profit margin news on the corporate sector is pretty good. While profit margins obviously got whacked in Q2, they fell to a level that's still basically the highest level seen in the last 50 years or so. Uh, U.S. companies are highly profitable and, and had the wherewithal, a lot of them anyway, to absorb the hit um, that came from COVID. And so, um, in other words, tech and farm and biotech, some of these pre-tax margins were still 20 to 30 percent, and they were more than twice the margins of some of the cyclical and consumer staple companies. The challenge is the, the P.E. ratio for the market overall, even if we look at it relative to 2021 earnings, which assumes a normalization of earnings back to 2019 levels, um, these, these valuations are pretty high. And, and it's hard to see how you could get a further valuation boost to market levels. I think from here it would have to be earnings-based. Uh, the top five stocks now represent the largest share of market cap since 1990. It's actually... A little bit, I think it's almost double the level that it was in 1999. In other words, the contribution to the overall market from Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook um, is double what the top five firm contributions were in 1999. And um, now there's a big difference between now and then. The, the, the free cash flow of the largest companies back in 1999 was, was terrible. It was like 8% and now it's closer to 20 So... Um, these companies are more profitable, but the valuations reflect that. And so um, it's an expensive market where people have been crowding into the stocks that are seen as having the greatest degree of protection from mobility issues resulting from COVID. And uh, it's going to take a lot of earnings broadening next year to prevent frequent bouts of profit, profit taking and intermittent stock market corrections. Um, right now, we're, I guess you would say, mildly optimistic on the, on the, on the outlook for a broadening earnings recovery. Uh, a lot of it's going to depend upon how quickly a vaccine is developed and how quickly it changes the behavior of the people that take it. The, the other thing to keep in mind as well, when you look at a world where you've got the five largest stocks representing an all-time high in terms of contribution to the market and to employment and to GDP, you have to start thinking about antitrust policies. Um, the, there were two or three instances in the last 50 years when you, when you had these antitrust concerns. Obviously, the end of the 1990s was one of them, the late 60s, and the industrial concentrations was another one. And now you've got this tech and social media uh, concentration where, as a percentage of the overall economy, it's, it's as high or higher than those two prior episodes, both of which led to some antitrust action by the Department of Justice. So, uh, and, and, you know, there's obviously some politics involved, but the attorney general has overruled the Justice Department lawyers that wanted more time before bringing an antitrust case against Google. And so a case might be filed as early as September or October of this year. Um, you know, there, and, and to be clear, while there's some political shenanigans in terms of the timing of this, there's bipartisan interest in this Google case in all the 50 states, given Google's control, I think 90% of global web searches and a third of all online advertising. So we have to start factoring in some of these antitrust risks. Um, 
I don't think that it's flashing red as a risk quite yet. Um, uh, it's unclear if the Trump administration has interest in broadening the antitrust actions outside Google. And if Biden's elected, um, he's expected to increase antitrust enforcement by the Sherman and Clayton Acts and things like that and to improve bargaining power for the gig economy workers. Um, he's also mentioned revoking part of the U.S. Communications Act that gives safe harbor provisions to protect Facebook from crazy things people post there. But Biden has called, uh, he's described calls to um, break up big tech firms as premature. Uh, and so far, his clearest antitrust statements are about farming, hospitals, insurance, and pharma, and, and not tech or social media. Um, I think Biden is more focused on protecting critical infrastructure from cybersecurity threats and things like that, and on restoring net neutrality. And, and we'd be surprised if a Biden administration really curtailed the ability of the big tech firms to acquire competitors and startups and, or to force divestitures. Okay, I know I'm running a little bit long this week, but there's a lot to cover. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. So I spent a lot of the summer, obviously, preparing our weekly COVID emails and maintaining the online virus portal that we have. Here's the good news. In most of the developed world, mortality has collapsed relative to the rate of infection. And there's a lot of debate about this. The most likely explanations are younger people are now getting infected and uh, obviously their mortality rates are much lower, so you have infections up, but mortality doesn't go up. You've got uh, more selective ventilation of hospitalized patients. I think ventilation was going on a lot more frequently in the beginning, and now they've realized that there are alternatives to that. Increased use of certain anticoagulants, blood thinners, and steroids, which have proven very effective because COVID's not just a pulmonary disease, it's also a vascular one. And don't discount the fact that when hospitals, doctors, and nurses aren't overwhelmed, mortality rates go down as well. So that's, uh, that's the good news. And um, now, this good news has ushered in, uh, I think, a strong belief in certain places that the economy should be reopened as quickly as possible. Uh, and some people have brought to my attention some issues with COVID data. Right? So if you're interested, here are some of the issues with COVID data, why it needs to be interpreted carefully. These PCR tests that are used in many places to determine public policy and school closings and things like that, the results are highly dependent on how fine-tuned the equipment is to determine positivity. So if you took a COVID test in one, in one lab in your state and, another, and you did the same exact test in another lab, you could get a positive and a negative depending on how fine-tuned this equipment is. And if all of the equipment nationally were, were calibrated similarly, um, the reported infection levels in certain places could fall by a lot. And by a lot, I mean 20, 30, 40, 50%. So there are, there are issues here in terms of how these PCR tests are used from a policy perspective. And, and the, the reason for all of the debate is how how much of a trace, how small a trace of RNA are you actually looking for? And if you're looking for any trace, uh, including in people that had the infection and are no longer contagious, because you want to find it for contact tracing purposes, uh, the, those very fine-tuned equipment will help. If you're trying to identify people that are currently contagious and should be isolated, having those fine-tuned equipment uh, approaches is not going to help you. So... Um, there's also some reports of hospitalized individuals maybe counted as COVID patients when they're there for other reasons and things like that. 
Um, the bottom line is that the PCR tests, flawed as they are, uh, are highly correlated with hospitalizations uh, and really the only way at this point to easily monitor community spread. And uh, I think people have to understand that. If you want to read more detail on this issue, it's on pages 7 and 8 of the Labor Day on the Market. We get into all the excess death issues and the cycle issues and the T-cell issues. There's way too much being written and said about T-cells at this point. You know, I, I, I agree. There's a lot of emotional workplace and economic stress associated with school closings. And I'm not arguing that they should remain remote. Um, in fact, I think that, that the country should be working as aggressively as possible to where expanded testing, contact tracing, and isolation can be used to spot and contain outbreaks, in which case you can reopen the schools. But that's for the public health officials to decide. And um, I think the, the, the libertarian narrative about the virus uh, takes liberties with the real-life complexity of this pandemic. So anyway, more on that in the, paid, in, on, in the uh, Labor Day on the Market. And then let me just summarize in closing if anybody's still here. Um, the president and the attorney general have been making a lot of very derogatory comments about the mail-in voting process. Um, to be sure, the mail-in voting process is not riskless. Um, in 2016, about 4% of all those ballots were lost or miscounted. Uh, this comes from an MIT study. But that's not that different from the amount of uh, in-person votes that get lost or miscounted in regular presidential elections due to deficiencies in election administration, inaccurate voter registration, malfunctioning machines, and things like that. So there's not a lot of evidence you can actually find that vote-by-mail ballots are nearly as destructive or, or inherently uh, exposed to fraud uh, to the degree that the president and, and uh, his attorney general have been saying. So anyway, um, but given the comments they're making and concerns about the political process, if it takes uh, a few days or weeks in some states after the election to finally count up the ballots and uh, figure out who won in each state, I put together a, a description of the rules, dates, and process in presidential elections, uh, and it's at the end of the eye in the market. The bottom line is the states have over a month to determine who the winner is in their state, right? So the drop-dead date is December 8th. That's the safe harbor date. And there's also a process in the Constitution that defaults to congressional election of the president uh, if, uh, on January 6th if the Electoral College doesn't produce a candidate with at least 270 votes. So uh, there, there are all sorts of contingencies in the Constitution to handle uh, weird outcomes. And what's notable is none of those contingencies involve the current president automatically by law remaining in place until things get sorted out. So uh, take a look if you're interested in how contingent elections work, where the, the House and the Senate pick the president and vice president, and if you really want to know the rules. Uh, I, I strongly believe that uh, even though there may be quite a few states that don't know who won the day after the election, Within two to three weeks, they will know after they count up all the mail-in ballots. Uh, and the states have discretion about that process as long as they are adhering to the Equal Protection Clause. So I, I don't really think as uh, they can stamp their feet up and down uh, as much as they want, but I'm not sure there's much the White House uh, and the Justice Department uh, would be able to do about the process. So thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.